You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, indeed, call us out of our wondering. Jesus, now come and cast out our fears. Spirit, come, come and preach Jesus to our deaf ears. Spirit, come, Lord, in your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn to Matthew 13, or if you have a Bible app, and I hope you do, um, flip to Matthew 13. Or feel free to look at your bulletin um, where the passage is printed. Now, if this is your first time to the 5 o'clock service, we've been going through selected portions of Matthew's Gospel over the past few weeks. A couple weeks ago, Michael preached on the famous parable of the sower. Last week, Matt preached on the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And tonight, which you just heard read, um, we have a couple more parables, the mustard seed and the leaven. Now, I should flag something else straight away. Did you notice as we were reading Matthew that the other two passages were being interacted with? Matthew was quoting from Psalm 78 and from Daniel. And I mentioned that just to give you a heads up, because if I remember to, I'm going to mention that as I preach. Now, I'm sure most of you know that we are in the season of Lent, which is the season that, have, that Christians have set aside to journey with Jesus. But this journey isn't like a trip up to the Rocky Mountains. No, no, it's not going from a spiritual low to a spiritual high. If we're going anywhere with Jesus, we're following him through the gathering storm that takes us to his crucifixion, to his death, where our old selves will die with Jesus. So Lent really is simply a way for us to reenact and retell the story of the gospel where we focus our hearts together on the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. But Lent also means something else for us nowadays. Perhaps, perhaps you were at lunch with a friend and you were tempted by dessert. And so you said to your friend, hey, what about the chocolate cake? And your friend says, well, sorry, I can't. I've given up chocolate for Lent. What are you giving up for Lent? Now, I've made up this conversation, but no doubt something like this has been said this very week, even here in Birmingham. And I think the conversation says something about us as American Christians, and maybe not just Americans, but Western Christians in general. What are you giving up? Since Lent in the church has historically been about preparing the church for us to sort of go to the crucifixion with Jesus, along with it came forms of fasting and calls for repentance. But back in the day, it wasn't up to each individual. It was that the whole parish was doing it together. It wasn't that I chose to give up meat. It was that meat just wasn't being served. But notice the shift here in our modern Western context. Now even my repentance and my self-denial are up to me. It's what I choose to abstain from. This is what the sociologist Robert Bella and the philosopher Charles Taylor mean when they talk about we are people 
who um, we're operating by expressive individualism, expressive individualism. I'm a lonely island and I'm free to choose, just like my J. Crew shirt and my selvage denim jeans say something about me, so even my religious choices say something about me. This year I choose to give up chocolate and next year I'm gonna abstain from margaritas. These things just help me be more me. Now that isn't to say there's anything really wrong with you giving up chocolate per se. Go ahead, fine. But tonight, Jesus wants to cut through all the talk of piety, and he wants to talk to us about something deeper and more pervasive than our cravings for chocolate. He wants us to go deeper. Jesus wants to talk to us about his radically new kingdom, how he is making all things new. Jesus has come to give not good advice, he's come to give good news. Because Jesus' kingdom isn't about something I can finally do for God. It's not my own individual project of self-denial that I get to choose. It's not even really about my faith. It's actually about the king, the king of the kingdom. And Jesus the king is rescuing his stolen creation. If our faith is about anything, it's not about faith in faith. It's about the object of our faith the king, our only mediator and advocate. And that brings us to Matthew, our passage tonight. Now, while our passage is rich enough to explore it from all sorts of angles, I want to paint the picture in two broad strokes to keep it simple. And we're going to work backwards. We'll look at verses 34 through 35 first, and then we're going to take a brief look at the two parables that Jesus gives us tonight. So first, and this is us reflecting on verses 34 and 35, Matthew wants us to know that all Scripture is pointing us to Jesus. Here are the verses, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now Matthew has been writing his gospel in such a way that he wants us to know who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Or to put it in Matthew's terms, Jesus is the divine king and around this king is God's kingdom, God's everlasting kingdom. In Jesus, God's kingdom has finally come, which is why Matthew will tell us that every so often Jesus will go throughout the cities and he will proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But if we've been paying attention, we've come to realize Jesus' kingdom isn't so simple that I can explain it away in a sentence. So in chapter 13, Matthew slows down so that we can listen in. We can listen to Jesus a little bit more closely, that we can... Um, we can reflect and ponder and turn over in our minds what he's trying to get at. He wants us to see clearly who he is and what he has come to do, which is when Jesus starts giving us parables, because he wants us to see the reality of the kingdom more clearly. But like the kingdom, Jesus' parables resist simple explanation, which is the whole point. He can communicate truth much more deeply in stories, and he can get much more across than simply stating 
X point. Jesus wants us to see, he wants us to understand that he is the king, he is the divine king, and he wants us to trust and understand him. This is what Jesus has been talking about in the parable of the sower, with understanding and sight and hearing. Jesus has come to reveal and disclose. He has come to make himself known. He has come to show us that God has come to do something drastically new in Jesus. And so in a way, what he's doing, he's doing something like what Flannery O'Connor talks about in one of her essays, The Fiction Writer and His Country. Here's what Flannery O'Connor has to say about writing fiction. She says this, When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. This is what Jesus is doing. He's no longer using normal means of talking to us. He's talking in sayings and short stories in order to press the truth more deeply upon us. He wants us to see clearly. He's wanting us to stop and sip on his teaching like a nice glass of bourbon. He wants us to chew on it, to meditate, to ponder more deeply who he is and what he has come to do, which is why Matthew gives us that little note in verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill. And then he quotes Psalm 78, our psalm for tonight. And what he's wanting us to see is Jesus is fulfilling everything that Psalm 78 was talking about as he tells us these parables. If we were to go back and read through Psalm 78, we would see it's a psalm about It's kind of a sweep of the whole Old Testament, basically. It's a psalm about how God has acted in history, how God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt all the way up to David the king. So what's the point? Well, it's such a huge thing, and it's a thing I didn't even understand as a Christian who grew up in church from childbirth. Here's the kicker, and I quite frankly can't stress it enough. All of the Bible points us to Jesus, from the creation story in Genesis, to God's dealings with Abraham, to the Exodus, to Israel receiving the law on Mount Sinai, to the establishing of the kingdom. All of it is driving us to Jesus. By Jesus and through Jesus, all things were created. In Jesus, God is rescuing us from our slavery to sin, just like he rescued Uh, the people of Israel from Egypt. The law finds its fulfillment and end in Jesus. And Jesus is the true and final King David. Excuse me, let me be a little more cheeky. Matthew here is making a controversial claim. He isn't saying that one way to look at the Bible is to read Jesus at the center, where you can also choose to read it as sort of a spiritual or religious textbook. No, no, no. He is saying that the only proper way to read the Bible is with Jesus at the center. The only way to understand history is with Jesus at the center. 
The Bible and history with it from beginning to end is about Jesus the King. It is about how God is acting in history to rescue us from sin. As Leslie Newbigin puts it, Jesus is the clue to our human story. Now, for the past few weeks, I've kind of, this is confession time, for the past few weeks, I've been an emotional train wreck. Um, If you've seen the show This Is Us, you know what I'm talking about. Super Bowl Sunday was not a good Sunday for me. It was a sad episode. In fact, my housemate walked in as I was trying to hold back tears, and I couldn't talk to him. Um, This Is Us is not for the faint of heart if you've seen it. But anyway, a few episodes ago, um, the character Randall, he's talking to his siblings and he's talking about, he's recounting as a child how he used to go to the eye doctor and he talks about um, what he calls the better machine. Is one better or is two better? You know, what he's talking about, it's the machine that when you need to get your eyes checked, you go to the eye doctor, you slide right up to it, And the doctor says, is one better or is two better? If you've been to the eye doctor, you know what I'm talking about. It's the thing that gives you your prescription. Jesus wants us to see better. Jesus is uncovering and revealing things. And as he's doing this, he's revealing himself because he wants us to see better. As Luke 24 puts it, when Jesus is on the Emmaus Road with the two disciples, he walks through alongside them. He, he walks through the whole Old Testament and shows how everything finds its fulfillment in him. Or if we think of John 5, when Jesus rebukes the religious people of his day, he says to them, you're searching the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So the scriptures and history with it, all of it points us to Jesus. So this is point one. Matthew is letting us know. As you sit around the campfire with Jesus and you listen in to the stories, Jesus is doing something absolutely fantastic. He's connecting all these loose threads and themes from the Old Testament and he's tying it in a nice pretty bow to show us that he is at the center of the story. And all of these themes and threads find their purpose and fulfillment in him, in who he is and what he has come to do. He is the king who is bringing in God's radically new kingdom. And now, now that Jesus is on the scenes just up and announcing God's kingdom without even giving anyone time to prepare for it, surely we should be asking some questions. Well, if God is God, if this is God's kingdom that you're announcing, and if God is God, um, isn't this his kingdom already? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense of he is the creator, and so this is his kingdom. But no, on the other hand, because God's creation is dysfunctional, and this is what we call sin. You and I are like Christmas trees We've been cut down from our natural habitat. We've been wrenched from our natural habitat. You can dress ourselves up in all sorts of fancy decorations. We can do all sorts of good deeds, but we're perishing because there's no spiritual life in us. We share in Adam's disconnection from God. 
Something is terribly and drastically wrong. And that takes us to point two, Jesus' broader point with the two parables. So point two, Matthew is telling us a tale of two kingdoms. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but if you were paying attention, these two little parables tonight, they come oddly placed. They come sandwiched in between what Matt preached on last week. So, so Matt's sermon, they sort of form the pieces of bread, and this week is the peanut butter and jelly, and tonight we get to open up the sandwich and take a peek inside. So when I see that, what that tells me is this. Matthew wants us to read these two parables in light of what Matt preached on last week. In last week's sermon, the parable of the weeds, Jesus pictures a field. And in that field, you have wheat and you have weeds. And by that, what he means is that on the one hand, you have God's kingdom, and on the other hand, you have the evil one's kingdom. So Jesus is telling us a tale of two kingdoms. And as he does so, he's inviting us in, he's inviting us to contrast with him the difference between these two kingdoms. Remember our parable from last week? On the one hand, you have Jesus planting good seed, and on the other hand, you have the evil one planting bad seed. There's a contrast. And so that contrast, as Jesus is telling us this parable, might leave us with some uneasiness. Does that mean then that the evil one, since he is disturbing God's good garden, does that mean Jesus' kingdom could finally fizzle out? Well, Jesus answers that tonight by telling us two more parables. God's kingdom, he says, is like a tiny little mustard seed, which back in the day was proverbial for meaning something small. So God's kingdom is like a tiny little mustard seed. It seems insignificant, but then you plant it and it grows into a huge tree. And Jesus' point, his major point, is actually lost on us if we don't know our Old Testament. And this takes us to the Daniel reading. Jesus is actually referencing that dream of Nebuchadnezzar that we read tonight from Daniel. Now this Daniel passage is interesting because it's actually polemical. So here's what the Daniel passage is about. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and Babylon was an ancient superpower. So they, and Nebuchadnezzar, they thought a lot about themselves. They were pretty self-important. They were pretty good. Then Nebuchadnezzar has a couple of dreams, and in that second dream, that's what we read tonight, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a tree. And this is verse 11, if you're looking at your pamphlet. This is verse 11 of that Daniel reading. He says, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, and its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches." Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because it sounds an awful lot like the tree Jesus has just described in Matthew. But then Nebuchadnezzar's dream continues, and he dreams that someone has told him to chop down this great and mighty tree. And when that happens, the birds aren't going to be perching there much longer. 
Now, if we were to have kept reading in Daniel, we actually get the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is that great and mighty tree. But Daniel lets us know, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a great and mighty tree, and all of the nations who are the birds that sit in your tree, there is coming a day when that will be no longer. There is coming a day, says Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will know that it is not he who creates and sustains humankind, it is the God of Israel. He is the one creator and redeemer. So turning back to Matthew, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is telling us that his kingdom, he's, he's contrasting it with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. All the kingdoms of men will fade, but Jesus' kingdom will be like the tree where all the nations will flock to it and will rest in his tree. And so he is asking us to contrast these two. Jesus says, yes, there is an evil one, and he plants bad seed, and he rules the hearts of men. He is evil. But know this, his time is up. Yes, he will plant weeds, but my kingdom, says Jesus, it is so very certain. It may look insignificant now. It may look just like a tiny little mustard seed, but there is coming a day when all the nations of the earth will flock to it and will rest in my kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, God is showing himself faithful to rescue and redeem his stolen creation. God is zealously committed to making all things new. He is relentlessly pursuing his world like the hound of heaven. He is taking it back. Our God made known in Jesus, he is showing us that his heart is for all the nations of this earth. The kingdom of men, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and of Rome and of England and even of the U.S. and even our own tiny little insignificant kingdoms. They will fade into history, but Jesus' kingdom will stand. And there is coming a day, there is coming a day when all the nations of the earth will perch in its branches. And how certain is this? Well, absolutely certain. Have you ever made bread? Have you ever put yeast into the warm, gooey mixture before you make rolls? There's no getting it out once you do. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here and it's here to stay. There's nothing you can do about it. Not even the baker himself can get it out. So Jesus here is reassuring us that his kingdom is so absolutely certain. And his kingdom is the kingdom that will end every other kingdom on this earth. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Satan, not even Satan can get rid of it. Jesus is the one who is the king and his kingdom will be victorious. The triune God of love will win. Now, if you and I were tempted to think before tonight, if you and I were tempted to think that we could read the Bible or read human history apart from God making himself known in Jesus, Jesus lets us know that you and I can only see clearly in him. If you and I were tempted before this to think that God's kingdom was somehow dependent on you and me, 
if we were uneasy in any way to think that God's kingdom in Jesus could fizzle out, that it could falter, Jesus puts an end to all that worrying here with these two parables. Perhaps we were tempted to think that we could finally do something for God. Perhaps we were tempted to read the Bible as a manual for religious ethics. Jesus lets us know that is so not the case. Jesus has come not to give us good advice. He has come to give us good news. And Jesus' kingdom is a foreign country. It is not anything that you and I could ever build. It is something we must undergo. It is something we must receive. And his kingdom will not be shaken. We don't need to give it a helping hand to prop it up. We don't need to finally do something for God. He is doing something for us. God's kingdom is not up to you, and it's not up to me. It's not under our control. It is so certain that not even Satan himself can get at it. Jesus is giving us good news. In Jesus' kingdom, God is always the main actor, and we find our place in his story. What Jesus is doing tonight, he is redirecting our attention away from ourselves and he's placing our eyes on him, the true and final king. In Jesus, who will be crucified and who will be raised, God is publishing his open secret to the world. God is the hound of heaven who is pursuing you with his relentless grace. God will be there with you before you repent He will be there with you as you repent, and he will be with you after you repent. God is tracking you down. He is like the man who has lost a sheep, and he goes after it with everything he has. He's like the woman who has lost that precious coin and will flip every piece of furniture over, search every nook and cranny until she finds that precious coin. He is the God who has come to rescue us, who has come to deliver us from our sin and our guilt. He has come to rescue us from the evil one. He is the God outside of you who is making all things new. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he announces over you, it is finished. There is nothing left for you to do. The tree is growing. The dough is rising. In Jesus' death, that is your death. His life is your life. And there's nothing left for you to do but simply believe because it is happening and rest in his tree. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.